leader for the church. And of course, when the pastor is away, I get to play. And uh, I enjoy giving the sermons along with Jim Lewis and Linda Busick, who is also part of the lay committee. Like many of, of you in this church, I wear several hats. But my passion is in outreach ministries. I've worked with missionaries, traveled to South America several times, and many places in the United States. And that's enough about me. We are going to touch on a couple things this morning. As I was preparing this message, I couldn't condense it all into one title. So there's a couple things that we want to talk about. And it all is about being a good neighbor. If you read through the pages of Scripture, you'll uncover one of the most informative, encouraging, and perhaps surprising lessons on leadership ever. If you turn in the epistle James, chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, we read, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing himself in the mirror. In John 14, 12, Jesus says, I assure you that whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. They will do even greater works than these because I am going to heaven. No matter how imperfect, inadequate, or invaluable you might feel from time to time, God has created us with the capacity to do the things that God does, and in fact, greater things. God chooses you to do his work. He calls you, he equips you, and encourages you to fulfill his mission. This is extraordinary. Ask yourself some questions. Do you feel as though you are doing the things that God does? Are you doing greater things than you thought you ever could? And do you believe that you can do even greater things? In John 14, Jesus assures us of our capacity to change the world, and then he encourages us to go out and do that work, believing that that is true. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul wrote to his community from a dark, dank, unsanitary prison. As he addressed his church in Ephesus, he offered them a similar lesson in leadership, and he offers it to us as well. Paul wrote of God's immeasurable and unpredictable power, saying, Glory to God, who is able to do far beyond all that we could ask or imagine by his power within us. Ephesians 3.20 In confinement, Paul reminded his congregation that no matter how dark, dank, or unsanitary things become, even if you find yourself imprisoned by God's grace, we have the power to change the world. It doesn't matter how stuck you are, how inadequate or hopeless you feel. By the power of God's grace, we are able to accomplish those extraordinary things, things that are far beyond all that you could ask, or even imagine in God's strength. This is God's call and scriptural promise to us. 
We are all capable of surpassing expectations. We are capable of surprising the status quo. We are created and gifted with the capacity to do the things that God does, and sometimes greater. We are filled with the grace of Jesus Christ that allows us to accomplish far beyond a lot of things. God calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things, and they actually do them. And in the process, they become God's misfit mission. And that was a book I read several months ago, God's Misfit Mission. And that's the text of the information for today's message. It was written by Scott Krocek. Here's the gist of Scott's book. He takes a fledgling church in downtown Kansas City with nine members and turns it into what you could say a megachurch in two years. The point of the book is not what he did, but how God showed him to do it. I've attended a lot of conference seminars and meetings, and a lot of us are concerned today about the numbers in the pew, how many people we have in our nursery and Sunday school, and the financial stability of our churches and the average age in our congregation, which is not going down. And for a lot of us, we've tried just about everything we can think of to increase the numbers, but it's not about numbers. Numbers are for human consumption. I don't think God looks at numbers at all. He's only interested in one thing, and that's your heart. Scott's book is full of illustrations of how he uses the unequipped the unsuspecting and fearful. Ordinary people just like you and I to do those extraordinary things God is calling us to do. God invites us. He stirs a passion within our ill-equipped and misfit hearts and then gives us a surprising ability to build Christian community or change the world. That's God's misfit mission. That's what God does. If you would have told me 10 years ago that I would be doing street-level mission work for the church, I would have laughed myself to the sidewalk. But God saw something in me while I was in, in the dark, showed me the light, and then equipped me to serve. My knees don't knock anymore. In Exodus, God called Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. God's misfit. In Jeremiah, God called Jeremiah to pluck up, tear down, to plant, and overthrow. And he did that. God's misfit. In the Gospels, the angel of the Lord told Mary, a young virgin, unwed, that she was going to conceive and bear a child who would be the Messiah. One of God's misfits. Ill-equipped. Surprised. Fearful. In each of these accounts, God called the unlikely candidates, and upon doing so, God reminded and assured them, saying, You don't choose me, but I chose you. After reading through the pages of Scripture, one thing becomes abundantly clear. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've been, because at the heart of God's story is a simple fact, that God chooses us first. Whenever God is going to accomplish the extraordinary, God will almost always call on the wrong people to do the work. 
and sometimes we think at the wrong time. He doesn't opt for the qualified. He doesn't choose the proven. God doesn't call the expected or the experienced. He calls misfit people just like you and I. God equips the called, the unlikely candidates, the holy surprises, and the unexpected persons of the world. God chooses us first regardless of our fitness to serve. The fundamental truth about God's misfit missions are that he doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. The people who God calls are almost always the wrong people for the job. Even Jesus must have, to, must have appeared to be an unexpected, unlikely candidate for a Messiah. If you look at it from the point of the people of that time, he was an unexpected, unlikely. And in terms of the people that might think what a Messiah would look like, Jesus was the wrong kind of savior, a misfit king, if you will, to say the least. The scribes and the Pharisees longed for a strong and powerful ruler or a notorious leader with obvious capabilities to violently overthrow the Romans. They wanted someone who could throw off the Roman yoke. Instead of meeting their expectations, God surprised them by sending a hopeless baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Jesus just didn't fit any better when he was older. In his 20s and 30s, Jesus wasn't anything special, and that's even hard for me to say. He was ordinary. He wasn't the person who most people would have imagined when they dreamt of a world without the Romans or religious leaders of that day. He was simply the son of a carpenter. Jesus came into the world at the wrong time under the cover of night. He came into the world in the wrong way in a feeding trough. And Jesus came into the world with the wrong people, a carpenter and his 14-year-old fiance. And Jesus came into the world with the wrong words. Bless those who persecute you and love your enemies. Matthew 5, 44. Jesus was the unlikely and unexpected and undesired. He was a misfit, ill-equipped to redeem, reconcile, or restore the world. And yet Jesus was absolutely and arguably the right person at the right time for the right job. Don't let being a misfit stop you from answering God's call. The most fundamental dimension of God's misfit mission is believing that you are worthy of God's call and the invitation that comes with it. Don't let your past hold you back. Don't let your past keep you from a wonderful future. With Jesus, it is always the right time to start doing the things that God does. It is always the right time to start living in response to God's call. It's never the wrong time to wake up to God's redemptive power and enter into God's misfit mission. The time is always right to believe that you are worthy of that call and start living in a way that reflects God's image to the world around you. There is no reason to wait. Yet we do. We do wait. We put it off. We hesitate. 
regardless of what you do, your job, your occupation, your Facebook status. Jesus tells his disciples and all his misfits, no matter, no, to remember Matthew 5:14 through 16, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before people so they can see your good works that you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. The greatest work we can do generally speaking, has nothing to do with your job, your titles, or your career. But how frequently we engage in the hard work of remembering that we are God's people who have been called and equipped to bear God's image to the world around us and everywhere, no matter what. All you have to do is step up, say yes, and open your heart. God has had a lot of ideas to grow the church, some better than others. And I want to touch on one today. The main thing that he hit on was to have contact with as many people as you can face to face. Not to ask them to go to church, but to become a friend, a good neighbor, if you will. Jesus did this very thing, meeting people where they are as they are. Not the people that we choose, but as they are. An invitation to church from a stranger usually never works. You need to build a rapport with that person, and that takes time. Statistics show that a much larger percentage of people will respond to a personal invitation to church than any other form of invitation. We have all tried a lot of things to fill the pews, but we probably haven't tried as hard as we should at just being a good neighbor. And what does that mean? What does that really look like? It's not just exchanging a salutation a couple times a week or a wave here and there. It means taking an actual interest in what your neighbor is about, helping him in whatever, wherever you can, being genuinely concerned for their well-being, not invasive, but being aware. I want to tell you a short story this morning about a neighbor of mine. Several years ago, the ponds around my property and surrounding property started to fill up, causing a moat to appear on three sides of my home. Water was so high that the two sump pumps in my basement were pumping every five to six minutes. And it did that for weeks. I went to the property association president to see what I could do, and he informed me that the neighbor across from me had plugged the natural drainage pipe once before because he had bought his home in a floodplain, and he was trying to protect his property at the expense of mine. However, the pipe that drains all the ponds on both sides of the road outfalls on his property, but still he had no right to plug the natural drainage because that was part of the association bylaws. He did not own that particular piece of property. He thought he did. Over the next several days, we had a couple of heated meetings and words and accusations were tossed around. He did unplug the drain because it is controlled by the homeowners association and not him. But my neighbor remained bitter for a long time. He threatened legal action if he ever caught me on his property. Kind of like the neighborhood bully. We didn't acknowledge each other for well over a year. 
I don't like any of my neighbors being upset with me. As a matter of fact, I don't like anyone being upset with me. I don't care for confrontation. I can deal with it if I have to, but I don't have to like it. The pastor reminded me several years back in a sermon of hers about being a Christian neighbor. And that stuck with me. Finally, my wife and I started to wave at him and his wife when that was all over. It took us a while. Not in a malicious way, but in a friendly way. When I would pass them on the road or see them taking a walk, I would wave. Both of them never waved or smiled for months and months. And then one day my wife and I waved and I saw his arm do this. (laughs) And quickly went right back down to his side. I knew we were making progress. (laughs) We were making progress in being a good neighbor. That's not an easy thing to do. Situations are different. Attitudes can be different. Several months after that, I was checking out the drain, and he came out to ask me what I was doing, and I looked for cuffs, quite frankly. I told him he was think- that I was thinking about installing a new drain pipe across the road to replace the one that caused the flooding. He was glad to hear that we were addressing the problem and asked me if he could help. And if I could help him with a drain issue on his property. And I agreed to do that. During the next hour while we talked, all the tension that had been building up for a couple years began to melt away. We agreed on the pipe project and a way to unplug the water issue on his problem. Since then, he has helped me and I have helped him several times. No, we're not exchanging birthday cards. But we are in the right direction. We're headed in the right direction. And someone has to start the process, and it's the Christian that should be doing that. God commands us to love thy neighbor as thyself. And do we always do that? When that opportunity is put in front of us, are we a neighbor that tries to understand, forgive, help, or care? Or do we perpetuate the tension, continue to play the one-up syndrome? We are to live as a godly example of a good neighbor, to show love, mercy, concern, and forgiveness for everyone. We're not to pick and choose. That makes us Christ-like. As I said before, let your light shine so someone else can see it. You can preach the gospel all day. You can talk about God even longer. But actions are more believable and influential than words. People will notice if you're a good neighbor, if you're a good person, if you're a person who is helpful, loving, cares about home, neighbor, and community. Scott asked his original nine members of his old church to be good neighbors, and they accepted that challenge. As new people came in, they accepted the challenge as well. Two years later, the congregation went from 9 to 2,000. This is a scriptural recipe for the church in a lot of ways. 
It worked in downtown Kansas City, and I guarantee you it will work here. And it is working here. After you have made some new friends of your neighbors, God will present you with an opportunity for an invitation to church on his time, not your time. Being a good neighbor takes care of all the other things that we're so worried about in your churches. Just think about it. It does. It will. So do the work. Plant the seeds. Let the Lord do his work. He will bear the fruit. In conclusion this morning, being a good neighbor is all about hope. It's always a good time for hope. It's a time for hope for all of us that are in the church and in the community. Hope is a future expectation of something favorable. Arguably the most powerful word in the English language, hope is a huge motivator in every aspect of our lives and our faith. Jesus' death on the cross was all about hope. Life eternal. I cannot imagine life without hope. Like I hope this message gets over soon. I hope I answer the call from God. I hope tomorrow is better than today. I hope they're healthy, safe, loved, secure, and most of all, I hope they're saved. Prayer creates hope. And serving people in the free store and church works gives hope. For some, it's just a pair of shoes or a t-shirt, but that equals hope. A little conversation with someone who cares gives hope. Prayer creates hope. So share the hope with your family, your friends, and your neighbors. And besides, your mother always told you to share. In Jesus' name. Would you pray with me, please?